0: continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Carlton Fisk facing fist. Bob Stanley. Hey, guys! Get my back! Please find me! Holy cow! Carlton Fist has put the White Sox ahead!
1: Harry Carey and Jimmy Pearsall losing their minds on the air at Fenway Park. Carlton Fisk with a game-winning three-run homer in the eighth in his White Sox debut and against the Red Sox, his former team. That is the backdrop for this crazy edition of Distant Replay on the White Sox Talk podcast brought to you by Wintrust. It is April 10th, 1981. Fisk made his debut. So did Greg Luzinski and Ron the Floor. Lamar Hoyt got the win. Ed Farmer got the save. Harry Carey and Jimmy Pearsall were allowed to basically say anything they wanted on the air, and they often did. It was a storybook debut for Carlton Fisk, featuring a gold mine of White Sox buried treasure. Holy cow, here we go. White Sox, White Sox,
0: go, go. Has put the White Sox ahead. Jimenez leaves the ballpark. You can put it on the board. Yes. We got a chance to do something real special. All right, sit back, relax, and strap it down. It's time for the White Sox Talk Podcast. From Fenway Park, Boston, our Chicago White Sox meet the Boston Red Sox. This is Harry Carey, Jimmy Pearsall, and Joe McConnell with us also. This is the beginning of the 1981 baseball season, and what an exciting year it promises to be.
1: Harry Carey setting the stage for Carlton Fisk's White Sox debut in 1981. Ryan McGuffey and Chris Kampka are with me as we break down this dramatic game and everything that happened on the field as well as on the air with Harry Carey and Jimmy Purcell, which, after you hear this podcast, might be just as memorable. Guys, this was like sports talk radio before sports talk radio. What these guys were saying on the air, it was crazy.
2: Yeah. I give me this duo all day, every day. It would, I mean, these are two guys who just didn't care. It's like, you know what? We're just going to sit here. We know who we are. We've got reputations in the business, in the game. Nothing's going to happen to us. We're just going to say whatever we want. Just call it like we see it. It was so much fun to watch.
3: Was so a was a year, yeah, I was a year and a half old um during this game so obviously it was fun for me to go back and watch this and and kind of just see what the times were like obviously they talk about so many things that would not go today a lot of a lot of stuff about women um and just the umpire it was kind of to me like pearsall was the original santo and for all this talk about hawk and umpires and stuff this game was one of the ultimate umpire games
1: ever. Could you imagine Hawk Harrelson and Jimmy Pearsall doing a game together? No, they'd be fired in like a second for the things <laughs> that they would come out of their mouths on the air at umpires specifically. Uh, we're going to break down Jimmy Pearsall and Harry Carey later, but for Fisk, would you say this is. The biggest individual moment of Fisk's White Sox career, his very first game with them.
2: Easily. It Easily. Has to be. Yeah, it has to be. Uh, considering he's a all you know, he's a New England guy. He didn't it broke his heart to come to the White Sox. I mean he wouldn't he'd say it. I mean, I was a little surprised in the pregame thing that he said a little disappointed. The fact that he even said that on air is a little, you know, it stuck out. But Here's a guy, his whole career is with the Red Sox. He's from, grew up in New Hampshire, Red Sox fan his whole life, and now he's leaving. And then there was some bad blood between Fisk and the Red Sox that led to this. And now he's with the another, another team, and he's coming back home to Boston and play it's his first game, and he gets a game-winning homer. And you couldn't have drawn it up any better.
3: I had no idea this happened. So, I mean, he had a lot of great moments with the White Sox, but none – like it's not like they were a phenomenal team during his White Sox tenure and then there's all these impact moments you can go back and find. There are a lot of great things that happened, the double tag, obviously he breaking the record for most homers by a catcher, all that kind of like milestone stuff, but to have it this game, I mean the fact that the White Sox even started the season at Fenway Park is that never happens anyway. So there were a lot of stars that kind of aligned for this to happen, and, and the setting for Fisk to have a three-run homer against a team that he grew up idolizing and wanted to be a part of and was a part of, it was, it was phenomenal.
1: There's so much to this than just he hit the home run against the Red Sox in his first game. Chris, can you explain how he became a free agent when he signed with the White Sox as well? Because you're not going to believe it when you hear this.
2: Well, the short of it is, the Red Sox mailed out his contract two days late. But why they do that? Well, there's some, you know, there's some conspiracy, there's some some thoughts about that. Um, the Red Sox maintained, particularly their their ownership, which is Haywood Sullivan and Buddy Larue, were the two guys in charge there. And Sullivan maintained that he was within his rights to mail it out late because he had signed his original deal. Um, prior to the 1976 agreement that started free agency, so under those rules, he believed that there was another option year afterward, and by sending it late, he kind of foregoes the arbitration process. He didn't want to pay all that extra money to Fisk, so that's why he, that's one reason why people think he did it. There's another conspiracy reason as to why he did it that in the uh, minor league system for the Red Sox at the time they drafted somebody named Mark Sullivan's catcher and that was Haywood's son. And, and the idea was they were grooming Mark Sullivan as the new Red Sox catcher. And, you know, they, there was a little bad blood between the Red Sox and Fisk anyway. In 79, he had some elbow injuries, uh, issues. And Sullivan actually came out in the public and said, I think his contract is bugging him more than his elbow. And that really stuck with Fisk. And there was a little bad blood going up into that. Now, so Bisk received the contract late, but the Red Sox still thought they would be able to have that one last year with him. But then, since it was mailed two days late, there was a hearing on that, and it was it was ruled that Bisc was a free agent in, on February twelfth was when when that decision came down. So, the story goes, the Red Sox made a counter offer the next day of five years and two and a half million. And Fisk and his agent, Jerry Kapstein, just refused it.
1: So and the other part to this, so people have an idea of what the White Sox role in this was, Jerry Reinsdorf and Eddie Einhorn bought the team in 81, like January of 81.
2: 29th. This this was January 29th. Weeks. This was two weeks after. This ruling came down two weeks after Reinsdorf and Einhorn got control of the White Sox.
1: So, they wanted to spend money and make a big splash. Bill Vec wouldn't spend the money. So, they're like, okay, let's make a winner out of the White Sox. They were really being aggressive and they made the biggest contract offer, certainly not only money, but years to Fisk. And he signed on the dotted line, what, like two weeks before the regular season started?
2: Yeah, March 18th is the date that I see. I mean, March 9th, March 18th. It was sometime in the middle of March. So, we're talking less than a month before the regular season was to begin. And here's the White Sox signing Fisk. It's a big splash for the new ownership group. That's a big deal. Uh, You know, so here's Fisk. Um, So here's something that Fisk said in 2000. It broke my heart to leave New England. To be able to play for the Red Sox was a dream come true. Then Mr. Yawkey died. Two other guys became involved as owners and did things to players that hurt us. So years later, he's still harboring a little, little bit of uh, bitterness towards him. Right, and
1: it's just a stroke of, I don't call it luck, but it's so random that the game, he signs with the White Sox, and then the White Sox happened, like Guff said, happened to open the season. It wasn't like he signed with the Red Sox, or sorry, with the White Sox, and Major League Baseball said, hey, wouldn't it be great if the White Sox opened the season at Fenway? No, the schedule is already in place he just right. happened to sign with the White Sox. He has to go to Fenway two weeks later and make his debut with the Sox at Fenway Park. How weird would that be, Guff?
3: I mean, we've seen this happen so many times now, and, and like as we've grown older and, and, and guys change teams, like it didn't and I, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't Bryce Harper like open? Uh, didn't they go to Washington like the very first weekend of last season? I know it wasn't opening day, but it was like the second. It was somebody's home opener. It happens a lot. It's it's kind of. I think it kind of works out the way it's supposed to work out. It's actually fitting, and maybe maybe for Fisk, that was – like you find all of these moments where the stars align, but when you think the Red Sox opening the season at Fenway Park. I mean, this year, had the season gone off, they would have been at the Red Sox home opener, but it wouldn't have been opening day. I mean, to have opening day against an AL East team now, granted the divisions were way different back then, but – it just, it's just – it seems unlikely that Fisk would have opened the season at Fenway Park. I mean, it could have been at Comiskey Park, but the fact that it was at Fenway Park was pretty remarkable after Chris just detailed the way this went down. Campbell, yeah, how many I mean, times
1: has this happened with the White Sox opening at Fenway?
2: Yeah, two. <laughs> two. 1981 was the second time, and the other, only other time was 1967. There you
1: That's go. It. All right, so here's Jimmy Hawk Pearsall. Played,
2: did Hawk Harrelson play in that game in
1: 1967?
2: So he probably did. Um, Probably. Yeah, he had to have, I think.
1: All right, here is Jimmy Pearsall interviewing Carlton Fisk on the field right before his debut with the White Sox.
0: Welcome to the leadoff show. My guest certainly is leading things off right here in Boston with a lot of excitement. A fellow who played 10 years in Fenway Park, had a lifetime batting average of 284, hit about 165 home runs, and the White Sox are glad to have him. The change from that white socks from the red Sox uniform to the white Sox uniform kind of exciting or kind of sad
2: well i think we ran the full gamut of emotions in this particular move uh, you know we're happy we're sad we're excited we're a little disappointed but uh it's it's cha- it's a challenge jimmy and i there's nothing i like better in this world than a challenge i think that with this club it's a over the years it's been just a little inexperienced and in, in their approach to the game Hopefully with Luzinski and LaFleur and myself and uh, some of the experience that the players have have uh, accomplished over the last couple of years, I think we can put a very, very competent and exciting team on the field. Are you scared today? No, I'm not scared. I've just got about 8,000 butterflies running around in my stomach, but uh, it's, it's going to be strange.
1: All right, so Jimmy Pearsall, former Major League player, not exactly the greatest journalist of all time, asks Carlton Fisk. Are you scared? I would never ask an athlete, are you scared?
2: <laughs> well, Jimmy Pearsall was one of a kind. I mean, I mean, you watched during the broadcast. You're just such an unorthodox talent there. And this is just an amazing, incredible story we've all been through in his life. But in that Fisk thing, my favorite toss to a break in all of broadcasting is Pearsall saying, we'll be back after these messages with some more talking about baseball. And it was like 50 seconds into the interview. Yeah, one question and then that.
3: I know I have notes here. That's, a, that's one of my favorite parts of doing these distant replays. I wrote, the interview is laughable. And that Fisk was by far the most knowledgeable.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: <So. laughs>
2: I don't think Piersall
1: did any uh, homework. He just showed up. He was probably out late the night before. They put a microphone in his hand. He does the interview. like we. And you, you know, we, I didn't play that part where he actually tosses, has that uncomfortable toss to break, but it probably went in his ear, hey, we got to go to break. And he just said, uh, we're going to break more baseball talk after this.
3: What, one thing that stood out to me, and I think Fisk might have talked about this right in the very first question, is he, he said, quote, the White Sox have been a little inexperienced in their approach. And he was talking about basically like the White Sox and like probably the Bill Vex 70s era. And that by him coming over with Greg Luzinski, that hopefully that they'll be able to teach these guys about winning baseball. So I thought that that was very interesting that you have this veteran coming over here saying, look, like we, we all know this team hasn't really been able to win and there's reasons for that. And it's just one of those like fast forward 40 years and it's very similar to young teams learning how to win by adding veteran pieces.
1: So Fisk, his number with the White Sox was 72. He was 27 with the Red Sox. And I found this quote, Ken Kravick Had his old uniform number, number 27. So he said, Fisk said, the White Sox offered me nine or 39 or 63. I said, I'm taking 72. 72 is my rookie year, also the year my son was born. It's my old Boston number backwards. And I'm the highest salaried number 72 in baseball history.
3: (laughs) He fit in well with the 2020 White Sox wearing these high numbers. We
1: want to talk about the uniform. This is the 19. Late 70s. I call them like the disco era pajamas. They're wearing their Damn. navy blues, on the road, white pants.
2: I love them. They look awesome to me. Oh. They're just so weird and different that I really appreciate it.
1: Chris Sale really... wouldn't like them.
2: No. no he well,
3: wouldn't. here's why I didn't, I didn't appreciate them, because they were playing a team that has such classic, great, old-school baseball uniforms. And when you see them play a team that actually has – a classic look to them. The White Sox stood out to me like a beer league softball team. <laughs> but it looked like an exhibition team that rolled into Fenway a day before opening day just for the fans.
1: <laughs> I agree with you. Okay, so if you were to buy a jersey from this era, whose jersey would you wear? Hmm. Uh,
2: Obviously, it's Fisk. There's some good picks.
1: My favorite player as a kid is on this White Sox team.
2: Oh, you had Chet Lemon. I mean, Chet
1: that, Lemon's on this team. That's I mean, your Harold favorite. Harold Baines player. is
2: on this team. Yeah, I've actually mean, got one of these. But the White there one. were
1: there were six
3: Hall of Famers on the field that day. If you for both for both teams, if you include Tony Larusa. So I mean, Baines and Fisk seem to be the two that stand out. But I, I kind of have a new favorite player from that era, and it's the guy who was on the mound. I kind of love Britt Burns. Yeah. I think I would have a Britt Burns jersey because he ha- he's so much part of that like early 80s and then, of course, the 83 season. And I went and looked him up and studied him a little bit more after this game. I would have a Britt Burns jersey. I wrote, as a matter of fact, I wrote at some point when we get to the game, I wrote somewhere, here, bottom of the third, I just wrote, I love Britt Burns.
1: <laughs> so he was a lefty sweeping curveball, like, like a little Barry Zito thing going on there. He faced Dennis Eckersley. Now, Burns was called up when he was 19 years old in 1978. His first full season was 1980. He's, you know, 21. 11 complete games, 238 innings. The story in the game, though. Yeah, I know where you're going. Rick Burns it. was found. It was
3: awesome. And I think Pearsall tells the story about Scout Bob Croomy. Our good friend. Well, this was, this was Harry Carey. Bob, our Harry. good friend. Well, I've never met him.
1: <laughs> By the way, uh, I, lo- I researched him. Bob Cromie or Cromey Okay, was a book critic for the Chicago Tribune. Wow. So
3: Harry Carey brings him up in the broadcast and says, our good friend. Well, I've never met him, which just jumped off the page. <laughs> something Hawk would say. But while he was in Birmingham, Alabama, where Britt Burns was, grew up, he read about him in an Alabama newspaper that he had this ridiculous record. I, I, don't ha- I didn't write all the stats down, but.
1: I got the stats.
3: Read the stats, Chuck.
1: Everyone, you're not going to believe this. Insane. In his high school career, Britt Burns went 35 and 2 with an ERA of 0. 0.12. In 1977, his ERA was zero.
3: So Krumi told Bill Vec, he. he Cut this out of the paper, wrote some notes down, sent them up to Bill Veck. He said, you should take a look at this guy. Vec sent a scout down, and before you knew it, Britt Burns was in the White Sox organization. I mean, great, that was a great story within the game right there. Another reason I love Britt Burns, and it also tells you 40 years ago how things were being done.
2: And, and by the way, a few more notes on there. 139 innings, 30 hits, 30 walks, 292 strikeouts. Um, not the, not the rain on the parade, but I'm fairly certain that Harry Carey read it verbatim out of the White Sox media guide <laughs> I'm holding right here because that exact thing is in there. But it's still a great story, and it definitely he, was awesome to hear. It was the timely. Podcast. Yeah, whether or not
3: he read it straight out of the like, – at least it, the timeliness was
2: perfect.
1: Look, it, there was no internet back then, okay? So – scouts if uh, someone happened to, if scouts were scouts or they were book critics for the Ch- critics for the chicago tribune passing by and making a phone call to someone like bill Veck. incredible. and then in terms of an announcer needing information that media guide was probably oh, harry's bible
2: oh there's nothing wrong with it i mean i'm full <laughs> advocate of media guides i have every one of them since 1976 um <laughs> but brick burns backstory my goodness what a fascinating story at age 13, he needed to have pins inserted into his hips to stabilize the growth centers, the upper ends of his thigh bones. He missed an entire year of school recovering from the surgery. And it, it would plague him throughout his whole career. In fact, he was done by age 30. Tried to make a comeback with the Yankees. That? And he had s- several hip surgeries and even had to have one surgery where they had to cut the femur in half in order to get the bone to align in the hip sockets properly i mean the guy could barely even sit it, it's just amazing that you know the perseverance that you actually go through just to pitch
3: you said that you done before age 30 he was done at age 26 that was wow. his, his final season was yep. 1985 at age 26 he went 18 and 11 with a 396 that was his final year
2: yep and tried to make a comeback in 90 with the yankees but it just wasn't happening all right,
1: we haven't even, we barely scratched the surface of the game, but we got to talk about a Harry Carey and Jimmy Pearsall. Um, where to begin? Let's just start with this. For whatever reason, Jimmy Pearsall seemed to hate the home plate umpire Marty Springstead.
3: He was terrible.
1: At one point, who was terrible? Springstead?
3: Yes. Yeah, he was bad. Oh, my God.
1: At so one point, Jimmy Pearsall says this, on the air. Imagine someone saying this today. Come on, Springstead, you haven't given us one all day, you homer.
2: The, the tone in which he said it was amazing.
3: It was terrible. There were multiple times both pitchers, Eckersley and Burns, and Fisk for that matter, were walking off the field thinking they had strike three on a ball that was right down the middle. The amount of show, showing up an umpire in this game from the starting pitcher, if you did half of what was done from either Eckersley or Burns today, you'd be ejected on the spot. Accurately, a few times, there was a check swing where he looked at the first base umpire and just, and just kind of threw his hands up like, yeah, whatever, he went around. I mean, it was pretty incredible.
1: I don't know how Jimmy Pearsall was able to travel with this White Sox team. I don't even know how they were able to do it because he would say things about their players that, I mean, they, this would cause a fight today. Pearsall uh, says, this, Jim Rice missed a shallow pop fly and Mike Squires tries to stretch it into a – he was a base runner. He tries to get to third base. He's out. Pearsall says on the air. He was out by a mile. Man, we've had two breaks in this game, and we haven't taken advantage of one yet. We have played El Stinko. El Stinko yep. I wrote that down.
2: Yeah, Harry, Harry was just as brutal. He was hard on these guys, and he was known for it too. The both of them together, though, my goodness. I mean, a- there was a point where Harry um, – it was a bad bunt by um, Morrison. And here he goes, oh, what a lousy bunt. I mean, can you yeah. imagine somebody saying it in that tone today? Well, I,
3: I thought it was clear that Jimmy Pearsall was not a fan of Mike Squires. Multiple times when he was at the plate, I mean, he was hitting second, and who was the substitute broadcaster in the middle of the game? Sorry. Joe McConnell. Joe McConnell was very He thought Squires could be a 300 hitter. Meanwhile, you have Pearsall at the top of the third saying, No way Squires can hit second. This guy's not adept to hit second. You have to have skills and the and an ability to knock guys over and get him over and be be able to get on base and Squires can't do that. Hitting second. No offense to Mike Squires. <laughs> it was like I just yeah. him open. Oh well, he's up to bat.
2: Yeah. And, but he tried to make up for it. and Says I'm not trying to say he's a lousy hitter. <laughs> so, yeah. Know, back obviously.
1: then, so it was weird. Back then, what they did was Harry would call the first three innings, and then he'd go to the radio booth in the middle of the innings. Joe McConnell would go over to the TV booth from the radio booth. Now. The first inning, like, so the fourth inning, basically, fourth when inning, the, yeah. it's, it's Joe McConnell and Jimmy Pearsall. <laughs> then the I'm fifth laughing. inning rolls around, and it's just <laughs> Joe McConnell. And I'm like, where did Jimmy Pearsall go? Did he go like, go get a smoke? What's, what's he Lit- doing?
3: There was literally no mention. For, like the next, for two innings, he was gone. For two innings, he was gone. He just showed back up with Harry. Like, ah, forget about it. I'll just do some – not one mention of where Jimmy Pearsall went.
1: All right. Pearsall Uh, had some ex wives apparently and a lot of girlfriends around the country. This is an exchange. I mean, all right, here's guys, should I ask? Here's, here's, I'm gonna ask you guys, should we play this exchange for people or should I recite it?
2: Play it? I would say play it, play it because I don't Uh, think they've nobody out there listening has probably heard anything like this.
1: All right, so this is uh, Jimmy Pearsall and Harry Carey talking about. Jimmy's social life to millions of people on the air.
0: Boy, am I glad to be employed by Channel 9. <laughs> yeah, all well, your ex wives can hear you can, now. They can see me now, 46 states, Harry. The alimony's going up. All those, all those girlfriends of mine I think I died. They'll know where I am. Three balls and a strike. No, all those old girlfriends <laughs> of yours are old enough to have died already. <laughs>
1: All right. Our thanks to WGN for the audio and our thanks to Harry and Jimmy Pearsall for, I mean, as I'm watching this, I'm like, I would love to go back to 1981 right now, especially like take a mental break from the pandemic and just be like, you know what? Back then, even though that probably wasn't politically
2: correct to say it, I just found it hilarious that you could actually say that on the air during a podcast. Well, in a way, I mean, if you know, some of the things that Pearsall's done, it, it was a, a miracle that he was still employed. So in 1980, <clears throat> he choked the reporter because he thought he was talking to the players about him. Um, then he was on a radio <laughs> show, I think with um, Bill Veck or something like that, or somebody's radio show. He called Bill Veck's wife a colossal bore. And then there was another incident where he referred to the ballplayers' wives as a bunch of horny broads who were just out for the money and security from their big, strong ballplayers. <laughs> so it was kind of a miracle that he was still employed by the White Sox.
1: Not for long, but he was there. I'm sure Jerry Reinsdorf watched that first year and said, you know what, I think we got to make a change in the booth next year.
2: I mean, if you take a look at Pearsall's life, and he'd be looked at as a hero today of all the mental health issues. He had some serious mental health concerns. In 1952 with the Red Sox, he had a complete mental breakdown, End up in a mental hospital for, for several weeks. The previous several months were completely blacked out from his memory. And oh. then he came back to the majors and actually had a productive career and was kind of a crusader for mental health um, years before you see that kind of thing a lot now. So Jimmy Pearsall will be a big hero among baseball circles.
1: Yeah, you just got to keep your social life off the broadcast.
2: He,
3: it, it was, him and, this is why him and Harry clicked so well, though, because he adored Harry Carey. That, to me, was clear in this broadcast. And Harry Carey loved, as he did throughout his career and on to the Cubs, loved having fun at other people's expense. And so bringing his love life, or lack thereof, on the air was something that I thought really worked well between them. Whether or not you could say 40 years later that, it's, uh, that, that, that it would you know, play today, we know that it wouldn't. But a half inning prior to that exchange, they talked about Britt Burns being still single. <laughs> and Harry Carey said he's smarter than a lot of people I know. So, <laughs> I mean, Harry even was poking fun at his own, his own life and his own womanizing.
2: Was and was fun poking it, it, you know, taking pokes at Jimmy just out of fun. And Jimmy didn't seem to mind. It was a fun interaction.
3: It was fun. Nick, and that's what it was clear as the game went on. Like, I thought it was clear that, that Pearsall adored and loved the fact that he was with Harry, and Harry had adored Pearsall enough to bring uh, all of the, the ribbing and enjoyment into a broadcast.
1: Yeah, at one point, Pearsall said, I want to say hello to all your taverns out there, (laughs) Harry. (laughs) It is so good. We still haven't even gotten to the game yet, but in a way, we are going to talk about the game because let's do You Gotta Be Bleeping Me. Now, normally, we do a game that Hawk calls because we we have this category called You Gotta Be Bleeping Me. Things we heard or saw on the broadcast that we couldn't believe. In this situation, since Harry called the game, we're going to call this Holy Cow. Holy Cow. So who's got some holy cows?
2: So right away they're gonna have somebody throw the first pitch of the game. <laughs> so here he goes, a lady is gonna throw out the first pitch, and her name was Stony Stone, and she wanted to throw the ball to Carlton Fisk, and then they had to explain to her he's not with the team anymore. He's over there. And that was a pretty funny story to get things started.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Well, so, let, let me piggyback off of that because speaking yeah. of Stone, Harry says on the air, Steve Stone was pitching that day for the Baltimore Orioles. How about yeah. that? Stone would eventually become Harry's partner with the Cubs. And oh, you've got that in there too. Stoney well. was pitching for Baltimore. Yeah, yeah Guff's got it. Uh, he gave up three runs in five innings, beat the Royals, gave up home runs to Clint Hurdle and John Wathan. he was coming off his Saw Young Awards season of 1980.
3: Pierceall mentions right before the game and before, right before Stony Stone gets the ball to uh, throw like three feet that Carl Yastrzemski was out with back spasms. And I'm like, wait, what? And I had to go back and back. Like, Holy hell, Carl Yastrzemski was still a member of the Red Sox and still had years left on his career. To th- like, I, I just I, I assume because, again, you're going back and you just kind of black out like you think he has in 67. Like, he legitimately was questionable. Like, I was
2: blown away. And then, when they were doing the announcements for the uh, starting lineup for the Red Sox, the the eighth hitter for the Red Sox was their center fielder Rick Miller. That's Carlton Fisk's brother-in-law. He married Carlton's sister Janet. So you have a family connection. In addition, everything else is going on.
1: That's crazy. I had another. You
3: got to be bleeping me. Go go
1: ahead. Go ahead. No, it's holy cow. Holy cow. Holy cow. Sorry. Holy cow.
3: What the hell was going on with the wind in left field? Like, holy cow, was the I don't know what the communication or lack thereof between Red Sox left fielder shortstop and third baseman was, but to have two bloop singles happen in the game, they're not even singles. It was just awful. Like, any time a ball was popped up just past third base and into short left field, it became a circus act. And I literally wrote, like, holy hell, like, what was going on in that spot other than bad?
1: So, who wants to do the backstop? The fan who fell on the backstop (laughs) screen. You want me to do it? Yeah. All right. So, they're coming back from the bottom of the seventh inning. Harry says this on the air. A fan scaled the backstop screen to get a ball that was lodged in the wiring and coming down, he fell on his back, but he got himself up. He waved the ball. He could have broken his back, but he got himself a. $2.75 $2.75 baseball big deal <laughs> yeah he was not
3: happy like he basically was like you got a $2.75 baseball congratulations like you should have broke your back you shouldn't be walking again and I, of course they didn't show it they just mentioned it back from break that this had happened I had another one uh go ahead this Fist, Carlton's son was in the dugout
1: sitting next to Herm Schneider
3: <laughs> yeah I mean during the game they cut to me I think is a second at bat maybe and it was like, oh, there's Carlton's son. And I'm like,
2: wait, what? And then they went to break on the, the screenshot of him. <laughs> Incredible.
1: All right, I got a couple more, and then we'll get to the actual game. Sox fans reached out to Harry not on a, by a tweet, but by sending a wire. A wire. Mame and Bob Verne from Glen Allen. Tom McClensky from Whiting, Indiana. Tom and Susan Elahan, formerly of Park Ridge, <laughs> were all talked about on the air. And the farm director for the White Sox back then was 25-year-old Dave Dombrowski.
2: That was a good one. Another, yeah. another potential Hall of Famer. And so, I mean, there's a lot of familiar name uh, connections. For example, White Sox leadoff man, Ron LaFleur, that's Todd Steverson's cousin.
1: I didn't know that. Yeah. That? And,
2: and he has a, uh, an unbelievable story of his own. LaFleur was in prison. And one of the fellow inmates knew somebody who knew Billy Martin. You got to try out with the Tigers after you got out of prison, and then became a base stealing star, the first guy to lead both leagues in stolen bases.
1: That's crazy. All right. Well, Ron Lafleur led off the game with a single, and then guys, nothing really happened in this game after that until Dwight Evans hit a solo homer in the fifth off of Britt Burns. So I want to kind of like jump ahead. To, well, we can say Fisk's first at bat. What do you think about the reaction that he got from the Red Sox fans?
2: Well, well, I mean, solid cheers. You know, yeah. it was nice to see it. A couple boos mixed in there. But the players were Yeah.
3: Probably people, the boos were probably for people who didn't understand the contractual language of what it
2: had. Generally, the, the Red Sox fans are angry about this. Uh, I even found a quote. From a Red Sox broadcaster at that time. Well, anyway, Hawk Harrelson was the guy, and he was not happy with it. Um, <laughs> he said, Heywood Sullivan is almost the laughing stock of the American League.
1: Almost. Well, Fisk was a legend, you know? He had yeah. the big home run in the 1975 World Series. He was an all star,
3: hometown he, kid. He, yeah. yeah.
1: And now really? he is. Here he's playing for the White Sox. And I'll say this about that uh, 1981 team. They are reminiscent of the 2000 White Sox. I mean, the 20,000, sorry, the 2020 White Sox, the current White Sox. Because young core, a lot of young guys, and they brought in some hired guns like Luzinski, Lafleur. I mean, the young guys were Harold Baines and Lamar Hoyt. And they were yeah. ready to make the next, take the next step.
3: That's what I mentioned in the early part about the Fisk interview is it felt like he knew what his role was going to be is kind of taking an entire organization with a young ownership group and saying, mm-hmm. here's how – if you want to win, like, you got to bring in – here's what you have to do, and here are the type of guys you need to have. So let's go yeah, to – Before you jump ahead, yeah, we'll yeah. Bring up, I wanted to bring Marty Springstead up one more time. Yeah. Harry Carey had one criticism of him. He said in his offseason, he's an executive at a bank, and it's I'll never put any of my money in his bank.
1: <laughs> that was early in the game. They were all, all right, so Britt Burns had a great game. Uh and Eckersley, they both were just on oh. fire. Neither team could do much of anything off of them. I mentioned the uh, Dwight Evans home run and then Gary Allenson, the guy who replaced Fisk behind the plate, he hits a home run. You're thinking, okay, here's gonna be he's gonna be the hero. That's not gonna happen. So they go to the bullpen. First off, out of the White Sox bullpen is Lamar Hoyt. Lamar Hoyt would go on to win the Cy Young in 1983, but they made him a reliever in 1981. Yeah. And did you hear Jimmy Pearsall rip into him on the air?
2: Oh, yeah. He was clamoring for Farmer, like, like right away, pretty much. Um, it is funny because you have Hoyt, the 83 Cy Young winner as a starter, pitching relief. You have Eckersley, the 1992 Cy Young Award winner in relief, pitching as a starter. It's kind of a role reversal. And those guys are fun to watch.
1: So let's get to the eighth inning. Bob Molinero is pinch hitting for Bill Allman. Bill Allman was the shortstop for the White Sox. The guy was like 6'3. He draws a he was, walk.
2: He was only playing because Todd Cruz had a bad back. So then Todd Cruz never even played in 1980 and 81 in the majors because he was ramping his ramping himself up in Edmonton and then got caught shoplifting in an Edmonton department store stealing watches. And that's why Todd Cruz never got to the White Sox in 81. (laughs) This is why we do distant replay, by the way.
1: We do distant replay for these kind of things. Yes, Pachorik. The White Sox are down two to nothing. Malinaro gets on first. Ron LaFleur gets a single. Eckersley is pulled. Who do they bring in? Bob Stanley which if you know your White Sox – you're not White Sox. If you know your Red Sox history, Bob Stanley pitched the 1986 World Series. The Red Sox were one out away from winning the World Series. Game six, but he allowed a tying run to score on a wild pitch, and he gave up the ground ball that oh, got past yeah. who? Buckner. No, Mookie. Oh, Bopner, yeah. Bopner, yeah. <laughs> Mookie – I said Mookie Wilson, but he was the guy who hit it. Yeah. Mookie Wilson was the guy who hit it. Mookie Wilson, there <laughs> yeah. we go. So – in a few years, Bob Stanley is going to be absolutely despised forever in the city of Boston, but he'd be on the mound for this. They're down 2-0, are the White Sox. They've got men on second and third with one out. Fisk comes to the plate. Guys, I ask you this question. Should they have pitched to Fisk or not?
3: I have why? how would you pitch to Fisk on here? No. I, get, I have reason – it Harry, Harry quickly just said, oh, yeah, he, he's, he'd be the go-ahead run. So, yeah, you got to pitch to him. Greg Luzinski looked foolish at the plate that day. It was his first game ever in the American League. I know Eckersley was out of the game at, at that moment. But Luzinski looked confused. He had had a terrible day at the plate. I'm going to take the chance that the guy, the hometown kid, the guy you don't want to face or be the hero – I'm going to put the ball on the ground. You have a force out anywhere. If I have an open base, I'm not going to pitch to Carlton Fisk. I could not believe it. That would never happen in 2020.
2: Yeah, I think they're playing off of this old strategy where it's like you can never put the winning run on. And in this case, Guff, you're absolutely right. You do it. Because Luzinski had been terrible. So you just do that play because it would look, and it did look especially bad when Fisk beat you.
1: On the first pitch. Yeah. Well, Let me go a little deeper here. Greg Luzinski's never played in the American League, okay? okay. And who was catching Bob Stanley the year
2: before? Carlton Fisk. He knows this guy. He knows yep. what he's got. Well, yeah. then again, they, they mentioned, hey, is it going to be weird facing Eckersley? And Fisk said right then and there, no, it's, it's completely different when you're standing there looking at him at the mound.
1: Well, what's so, he going to say? Well, I don't know. And then I looked this up. Two weeks prior, Fisk – this is when the White Sox had spring training in Florida. Fisk faced Bob Stanley and got a double off of him. So I wouldn't have gone I, near him.
3: I don't understand it. I don't understand Forty years later, I don't understand it. It made no sense in the moment when I saw the, the runners on second and third and Fisk coming to the plate. I'm like, why? I, knew was, I already knew the result and could not believe that they had an opportunity to put him on. They didn't.
1: All right, so let's play. I'm giving you like the full version, okay? This is like a minute and a half long. Jimmy Pirsall is, <laughs> he, I'll give Jimmy Pearsall credit. He calls, he calls the home run. He's like, he's gonna do it. So here it is. Uh, one of the greatest moments, broadcasting moments in White Sox history. It is Jimmy Pirsall. it is Harry Carey, it is Carlton Fisk, roll tape
0: to you? How about a home run right here? Oh no, that would be the winning. That would be the winning run. They sure. got a pitch going. That's right. I want a home run, Harry. So here's Carlton Fitz. You think he isn't thinking home, bagger? I think he's thinking base hit to tie it up. Bob Clear, a right-hander, and Tom Bergmeyer, the left-hander, in the bullpen. For oh, the Red Sox. A base hit would tie it up. Well, a home run would put the White Sox ahead. They're going to give us a run on a ground ball, except probably the third. Yeah, we'll the infield's playing back. Carlton Fisk facing Bob Stanley. Hey, hey go! Hey, get right back! There. Please get the... Holy cow! Carlton Fisk has put the White Sox ahead. A line drive. I was afraid it might not get us high enough. And the White Sox lead... Look at best. Look at best. He's <laughs> your base hit, Harry. <laughs> he hit a low break. Look ball. at the White Sox dugout. <laughs> Woo! Hey! Oh, look geez. at Eddie Einhardt. That's what we did. Charlie Lupin almost jumped out on the field. Einhardt said that's what we bought him for. Whoa! <laughs> Harry, hit a tough low. Look at that sign. Get it right away. Let's train, Let's straight, straight Sullivan. Sullivan. <laughs> He fouls a pitch back. Boy, he hit a low pitch. Oh, just barely Ooh. made it a line drive. Woo! How's that, sport fans? Three to two White Sox. Oh, I love
2: There's it. There's
1: a strike call. Wow. Wow. The, the screaming on the air. I've never heard that before. Jack Brickhouse used to do a little bit with the Cubs, but are you kidding me? The, they sounded like they were a bunch of, you know, fans in the stands calling the game.
3: And Pearsall admitted it too during the game that he's like, I'm a fan today. I just, he's like, I want to win this game so bad it hurts. It was awesome. I wish there was more of that. Like that to me is what's missing today. I love the, the natural raw emotion excitement part of the game, part of that. As soon as he hit that the ball left the bat, and they just left their chair. You could feel them. You almost watching that game, I felt like for a second, I was in the booth with Harry and Jimmy. Like, watching, mm-hmm. feeling them get out of their seat as that ball gets into the net, I missed that part. Like that, to me, was that, that's, that's what was so great about that era.
1: Homer, Chris, they
2: were giddy, right? Yep. People complain about, about Homerism. I loved it. I love Homerism. I want my announcers rooting along with me. And it's crazy because not only Fisk, but Pearsall grew up Red Sox fans. And here they are going nuts because they're a home run in a White Sox uniform. And I love the little graphic of holy cows uh, (laughs) blinking on the screen as he hit it. That's something we need to bring back, I think.
1: And Jimmy Pearsall said this on the air. Ralph Houck, was that his name? Yeah. Ralph Houck was the Red Sox manager. And he says, I want to thank Ralph Houk for bringing in that pitcher. Yep. (laughs) He didn't even say Bob Stanley. He's like, I want to thank Ralph Houck for bringing in that pitcher. So here are the White Sox. They lead five to two. We go to the ninth. And we're going to dedicate the ninth inning to Ed Farmer, the late Ed Farmer. He was the White Sox closer at this time. He would eventually come into this game. But first, Lamar Hoyt is out there. It's the bottom of the ninth inning. And he's having some trouble with his command against Gary Hancock. Pearsall is losing his patience. Is ripping Hoyt on the air. Roll tape.
0: <laughs> Good power too. Three, two, pitch. Uh-huh. Walked in. Ball four. Oh, Cardenales Here's Gary Allenson. He homered. Get, Get Farmer in the seventh. Get Farmer in here. Oh, Come oh. on, slider outside. Ball one. You know, experience in this situation is what you got to have in there. And Farmer has done it so often, so many times for us in the last three years. i got to go with my percentage. Way outside, ball two. Get him out of there. Boy, if he gets this guy on, the tying run will be at the plate. And at Fenway Park, anybody can hit one out. All
1: right, guys, could you ever imagine a broadcaster today like steve stone calling the game with jason vanetti okay and steve stone being so upset that rick Renteria will not bring in let's say alex colomay that steve stone would say come on bring in colomay
2: like watching games with my dad and he's like get thornton out of there you know yeah so, i think yeah. i think that happened
3: with stoney in 2004 with the cubs and you saw how that worked out, the bullpen making phone calls to the booth. I mean, it just doesn't happen today.
1: So, Pearsall's railing on him, and here's the best part. It, he did have a 2-0 count to Allenson. Hoyt ends up striking him out. And Hoyt struck out a bunch of guys in that game, like Perez and Rice. He had great stuff. I love that leg kick he had. He just was you know, a, a late bloomer, and, he, and two years later, three years, two years later, he'd be the Cy Young Award winner. Now let's get to the final out. Two outs in the ninth. The White Sox lead five to three. They bring in Ed Farmer with runners on second and third facing Joe Rudy. And before we uh, play it, got any thoughts on Ed Farmer there, Chris? I've never seen him pitch before.
2: So it was cool. And he looked pretty damn impressive out there, you know? I mean, he's a big guy. Um Really threw hard. Looked kind of intimidating out there, as much as you can look wearing the pajama jersey. But it's uh, <laughs> pretty cool to see him pitch.
3: I I, I piggyback up with Chris said I, I'd never seen a pitch, and he just looked so good and athletic and confident. And they mentioned about how his off speed pitch was devastating. Uh, I also have the side note of here who was warming up with him in the bullpen that I think is actually pretty cool. The fact that him and Kevin Hickey were in the bullpen together, yeah. the Chicago guys warming up next to each other. Just, uh, I felt like that was like, that was worth an asterisk or a special
1: note. Kevin Hickey was a rookie. He would make his major league debut when they returned back to Chicago. A few days later, there were like 50,000 fans at Comiskey park. I highly recommend you listen to the conversation I had with Kevin Hickey's brother, Tom on the podcast. I want to say we did that a few months ago to learn about the amazing life of Kevin Hickey, but now it's, Close it out. Here's Ed Farmer winning this game for the White Sox. I mean, obviously Carlton Fisk won it, but he, Ed Farmer, closed it out.
0: The game is on the line. This is his bread and butter. These kind of situations. Well, he's taking a lot of time, ain't he, Harry? I don't know whether he's, he's a little bit nervous or he's trying to get the hitter a little bit pressed. center Rusty Coons shading his eye. Sox win. Sox win. Holy cow. Say it again. Pitt Farmer gets the save. Lamore Hoyt, the victory. And what a ball game. This one was to win for the New Deal Chicago White Sox. The final 5-3. to three.
1: So the White Sox win the first game of the season. They're 1-0. They're going to the World Series. They might win the next seven World Series, the way that Harry and Jimmy were just ecstatic because of this Carlton Fisk victory. And I want to get to this next segment, which is Back to the Future. Since Back to the Future came out in the 80s, things in the game we would or would not bring back. Go ahead, guys. What do you got?
3: Well, one thing I want to bring back for sure is Harry's, oh, I think it was Harry's catchphrase that he highlighted at least three times in the last two innings. The White Sox are your kind of team. Let's bring back the White Sox are your kind of team. I I am all in. I want this T-shirt that says the White Sox are your kind of team.
2: And he then at the that. game, at the end of the game, he referred to them as the New Deal White Sox. Like, it was I, I, like FDR or something? What was going on? <laughs> uh,
3: he mentioned like it was almost like he was trying to sell the catchphrase and especially in those last two innings. He was like, And the White Sox are your kind of team. Remember
2: that, Jimmy? The White Sox are your kind of team.
1: He's new- already marketing.
2: I was yeah, like wondering was if there's some kind of inside joke that I'm missing there.
1: I don't know.
3: I think the new ownership group changed a lot of the way – with the way that they acted and, and went and got guys. I just, your kind of team thing was,
1: was funny. Chris, what do you want to bring back?
2: I want to bring back the graphics. One the, I want the <laughs> holy cow during home runs. I want randomly putting guys' names on them in the middle of the game. Like right before the pitch, let's flash Britt Burns up there and the, and the hitter at the same time. Or when the guy comes up and just put runner on third – on the batter it was so weird you know, of course you know i do a lot of that stuff so i, I probably pay more attention yeah. to your average fan but the graphics are awesome they're so old school and simple and a lot of fun.
1: <laughs> last time on base stole
2: second yes love it <laughs> to the point that's all you need to know
1: because you didn't have the internet you're they're trying to provide uh information that they i
2: appreciate it Couldn't. i appreciate it i appreciate when uh harry was talking to um Pearsall about home runs in the end. He's only six hundred and thirty-five behind Babe Ruth. And he's like, hey, the only one you got publicities for is the one you ran backwards. And it's true. Pearsall's hundredth home run, he ran the bases backwards. And he hit it off Dallas Green.
1: Who later hired
2: him as the Cubs uh, minor league instructor? There's a fun little nugget there.
1: Does anyone want Something. to bring back Jimmy Pearsall?
3: Uh, yes. I, I'd bring him back for as long as he would last, which I'm questioning if he would make it out of a half inning, especially if he made a comment about a woman like he did in the ninth when Miss Boston walked by in a yellow sweater. Both, of course, Jimmy and Harry played off of it, but Jimmy took it a little bit further saying <laughs> that Boston wasn't known for their looks and this town makes you want to move. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure – I'm pretty sure he wouldn't last a half inning in 2020. But the fact that he here's what like the the door would be open. Harry of all people, Harry Carey would open the door, and Jimmy Pearsall was the one who took it six doors down. I mean, he just destroyed what women looked like in
2: Boston. Do you I don't know think how to these follow two up guys with that? played off oh, each other beautifully. They I'd did. say they did. Yeah, yeah they I think did. They're a
1: comedy team.
2: One would egg the other one on. I don't. I don't think they'd be quite the same without the other.
1: Well, here's the crazy thing. Me growing up, my introduction to White Sox baseball was Harry Carey and Jimmy Pristall. I listened That's to these guys on the radio, amazing. watched them on TV. I mean, I, I fortunately did not become like a major philanderer and <laughs> drunk, <laughs> fortunately. I, I just loved the White Sox because of it. Because of these, these two guys got me excited about the White Sox. So they, they, were they the did only- their job in that way.
3: They also weren't the only two doing it. I mean, yeah. it wasn't – like, Harry Carey was a national broadcaster. I mean, I was yeah. working national games. So, uh, I mean, there's no doubt that as time went on, you know, more and more people would not employ guys like Jimmy Pearsall. He, he as, as you guys mentioned, he, he found himself uh, with short, short ends of the stick many times because of the, what he was saying on the air.
1: Well, here's something I would not bring back from the past to the future the White Sox television contract. Mm. Because here they have the first game of the year on WGN. Now, before this, they were on Channel 44. I guess they must have not have been on Channel 44 anymore because after this game, I mean, imagine this today. Yeah. After this amazing game, the next three games were not even on television. The home opener was not on TV. There were 51,000 fans there. No one, no one could watch it. Yeah, the next game, their
3: next White Sox broadcast was... A week from then. So, Friday – this was Friday afternoon at Fenway. The next White Sox telecast was Friday night at Comiskey Park.
1: So, if you're wondering how sports – how and why sports vision and sports channel came to be, I'm guessing it's because of this.
3: Yeah. Like, baseball radio broadcast only sometimes had nothing. It's just like games were happening and no one knew unless you were there. And the other thing I don't know if I would bring back – and I, Harry Carey wishing the Cubs – did you, Harry Carey, before he went to break, I wish Jack Brickhouse and Lou Boudreau and all the people with the Cubs a great season. Now, I think part of that was because the both teams were on WGN for the first time. But it was kind of interesting that Harry Carey is wishing the Cubs a great season.
1: Or, or maybe the writing, he knew the writing was on the wall. That I, I I thought so too. That the new ownership group probably is not going to bring them back for the following year. Or if, if not, probably... It was not a done deal, and he was just looking at his options. It was
3: – yeah. You know, guys like Harry back then, they didn't – they were, they were going to do what they wanted to do, say what they wanted to say.
1: All right, let's close this out with uh, stuff on Fisk. He played more games with the White Sox than the Red Sox.
2: Yeah, can you imagine if you're signing a 33-year-old catcher? Okay, we're signing a 33-year-old catcher. He'll be here for 12 more years in the end. That's absurd. I mean, took the most punishment of anybody on the field. He's going to be the most durable. But Fisk. Fisk is different.
3: Yeah, you know, Chris, I I know you love Fisk. My brother loved Fisk. He was his favorite player as well. I always kind of felt a little bitter towards him for some reason, and I don't know why. I know one of the things – like he was one of the last players, I think, to choose his cap, if I'm not mistaken, for the Hall of Fame. Um, You know, the fact that he chose Boston instead of Chicago, does he have – the memories and the hometown thing—you like can make that argument. And kind of, it was probably like a gift back to Boston, as like, you know, hey, like a gift back to the fans. He never really wanted to leave, but you know, like he became a legend on on two in two towns, and he, play, he spent more time here. I don't know. I saw. Well, uh,
2: they I, showed I, him, they, they didn't show him the door in the best manner, and I, I think that probably had everything to do with that. Well, you know. And the hometown thing. I mean, I can't hold it against. He was to show the door the best way, really, either way.
3: I mean, there's no easy way to show the door when you're 42 years old.
2: No, that's true. You know. It, it's it's You can see both sides of the uh, thing there, sure.
1: The White Sox retired Fisk's number 72 no, uh, jersey number in 1997. The Red Sox retired Fisk's 27 three years later.
2: That's, that's two thousand. That's surprising. <laughs> that's... <laughs> I, re- I was doing a little reading on Fisk, and I, and I read this on his um, high school varsity letter jacket. He had stitched on it, hudge. Not Fisk. Wow.
1: Didn't yeah, know that. that was
2: a little interesting Fisk nugget I, I, I found there in the read.
1: And one more nugget lost in history. April 18th, here come the Red Sox to Comiskey Park. So this is just a week later, like eight days later. Fisk hits the game winning home run off Frank Tanana in the fifth. The two run home the Sox won two to one. He did it to them twice in eight days.
3: And early in the season, that usually sticks with you. I can it certainly sticks with ownership both ownerships. It's like we did the right thing and how did we let this
2: guy get away? Yeah. Well, well yeah, is- I mean um, also in the in the home opener, hit a grand slam. It was against the Brewers, but so the first game of the season, he won, hit the game winner. In the home opener, he hit the Grand Slam. So, yeah,
1: I can tell you, what a start. As, a, as a Sox fan, now with the 77 team, I was too young. I didn't know what the heck was going on with that team. And that there was a lot of excitement. I really got into the Sox in 1978. I was really young. And the Sox stunk for 78, 79, and 80. So basically, half of my life, they were bad. And 100% of when I was watching them, they were bad. 81 comes around, they get Fisk, Luzinski, LaFleur. I was all in on this team, and they got better. They they ended up having a strike-shortened season, but they had a winning record in the first half. They broke it up into two halves uh, because of the strike. But then 82, they won 87 games. 83, they win 99. They win the division. And I am a Sox fan because of this era, really, 81 through 83. and. Uh, reliving anything from these three years we all are different ages but this was a blast going through it because this was like planning that when 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 fisk hit this home run like wow big moment for white Sox fans
2: yeah go ahead chris i'm with the 83 team um i was only three when it happened but all the first things all the oldest possessions i have of baseball are from the 83 team and so i cherish those things and kind of developed a love for the, those players that I, you know, got to learn and love as time went on. Um, one last Fisk thing, though. He would wear a T-shirt that read, Heywood and Buddy suck every time he faced his old team. And I wonder if he was wearing it this day. I hope he was.
3: It's a great nugget. It's a great nugget. I actually had to appreciate uh, 83. I was the same age. Chris and I are the same age. So, um I didn't have the same appreciation for 83 as I did later in my life, but I did have the appreciation for Fisk and Baines because I hopped in in like 85 where I like the first years I remember watching and there were some growing pains because those were like LaRue coming out and Hawk being the GM and the cleaning house and that whole mess in order to get to 90, 91, 92, 93, 94 before, uh, before things got fun with Frank and those guys. So there were some growing pains too with Baines and Fisk, uh, on those, but some of those 86, 87, 88, 89 teams were some of my, my best memories ever as a kid at the ballpark with teams that won 70 games. <laughs>
1: it was yeah, always I was going to say, those teams were terrible.
2: <laughs> Horrible. Horrible teams. <laughs> it was always Fisk with me, though. I mean, maybe he had a peculiar number, 72. And he had a cool name, Fisk. Yeah, Pudge. He had yeah. a cool I mean, name, I mean, Pudge.
1: I mean, Pudge. I mean, yeah, Guff. Guff, yeah. I'm not sure we're going to do like any that. distant replays from the 86 to 89 years. Maybe no yeah, nah, nah.
3: no you there it those are more blips like Yvonne yeah. Calderon leading a team in Homers with fourteen uh, it, there's not a lot to remember other than you know Steve Lyons losing his pants and and uh just a lot of bad some ron Kittle some ron Kittle roof shots
1: yeah and it ends up right about there <laughs> well hey, we went long on this one, but it's you know our plays disc- we just love love going in a time machine and. Uh, breaking it all down and I know you guys who listen love these so uh, hope you enjoyed this edition of Distant Replay Carlton Fisk's home run on the White Sox talk podcast brought to you by Wintrust your home for White Sox checking with free ATMs nationwide go to their special White Sox webpage www.wintrust.com slash Sox it would have been fun to have Hawk on this uh, podcast actually talk about <laughs> Fenway <laughs> although Yaz didn't play so he probably wouldn't have liked the game that much good <laughs> point Hawk Harrelson, take it away. Thanks, our Chuck. And this edition of the White Sox Talk Podcast is over.
0: Some people just know there's a better way to do things, like bundling your home and auto insurance with Allstate, or hiring someone to move your piano instead of doing it yourself. So do things the better way.